Welcome to the Path 5 Podcast. The Path 5 team is a dedicated group of professionals hailing from diverse backgrounds, all anchored in making the world a safer place. Thanks for joining us while we dive into today's topic. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. Welcome to the Path 5 Podcast. This is going to be an interesting episode. I hope I don't say that every episode, but uh, this one is going to be a little more on the interesting side. Pretty sure you do say that every episode. I think I do. That's because all our episodes are interesting. (laughs) That's true. In their own way. Yeah. This one's a little more interesting than, than some, I say. And the reason for that is because it is a look at some controversial history. Which has been a big deal lately, right? So, and as a result of this rampant wokeness that's going on in the United States, probably all over the world, uh, I wouldn't know because any other news from anywhere outside the U.S. is basically censored right now. Um, I would say that that the conflict that we saw in uh, in Rhodesia is definitely one of the more controversial ones um, in recent history due to the fact that there's a conception about it, that it was a white minority versus black majority, only fueled by racism, all kinds of atrocities, etc. But in reality, it's a lot more complex than that. Did that play a role? Yeah, absolutely. There was some, some racial... Uh, I guess, motivated uh, violence there, without a doubt. But we're going to get beyond that, and we're going to actually look at some of their tactics, uh, some of their techniques, their procedures, as well as, you know, some of their history and some lessons that we can pull from them. So we've seen recently mainstream media that people are concerned with the the return of Rhodesian brushstroke camouflage. Uh, There's a New York Times article linking it to white supremacy. Probably written by the same guy who um, wrote that one article saying that Hawaiian shirts are the new uniform of white supremacists. It's just rhetorical fallacies, just like massive leaps. It's just like, come on, guys. Like, let's let's not overgeneralize here. So there's there's been a little bit of a negative publicity about the Rhodesian conflict, which I, we feel really takes away from the lessons that can be learned there. You know, it's history. It's whether it was good or bad. Guess what? It happened. We can't pretend it didn't happen. And if we're gonna just cover our eyes to it, then we're missing out on a lot of really interesting lessons. Um, especially looking at it through the lens of global co- global conflict as we've been in the desert for, you know, almost 30 years, basically. And guess what? A lot of the world is covered in jungle, which is a whole different type of warfare. So through that sense, it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. And that's what we're going to really look into. Uh, you know, and if you look at everything from peak military strategy and really high tier units to... Uh, effective business acumen, candor, and honesty are huge. Even if things are difficult to talk about with some folks, that generally means that discussions surrounding that topic or event are incredibly important and hold those lessons. So here goes our analysis. So to quickly set the backdrop for you, our listeners, what was then known as Rhodesia is currently Zimbabwe. In the 60s, it was ruled by a white minority. It's a demographic fundamentally made up of uh, farm owners. So you had your, your white landowners in an African country. Um, and they end up engaging in the situation where um, United Kingdom, Great Britain, they're decolonizing Africa. And they enacted several policies that would have made it very difficult for these landowners landowners to retain control of their lifestyle, of their land. Uh, And because of that, uh, you know, they decided to stand up and fight. And 
went ahead and preemptively broke off from Great Britain, went ahead and established their own nation of Rhodesia, and uh, kind of rolled the dice a little bit. I'd say it was a, it was a bold strategy for sure, uh, and they ended up in quite the pickle because, on one hand, they were facing these big time guerrilla groups that were directly supported by the then Soviet Union as well as the Chinese government, therefore were communist socialist leaning. And on the other hand, because they had seceded from Great Britain in such a way, they lost the support from the more capitalist nations such as the United States, United Kingdom, and they kind of found themselves in this weird limbo state where they're like, they were fighting communism without the support of capitalist nations. Outright support. Pretty sure there were some. You see them flying around Huey's, right? There were, there was some backdoor stuff, but it wasn't in overt um, support. So it's a really interesting situation to be in geopolitically. Um, you know, so due to the uh, racial tensions in the country, many of the blacks rallied under the likes of Robert Mugabe, who had advocated for reparations in the form of land redistribution uh, to blacks who'd been disenfranchised at that point. And they were kind of banking on Great Britain um, operating under this policy that was actually known as NIBMAR. So no independence before majority rule was the acronym, which is pretty interesting. So think about it this way. If you're a, a black in then Rhodesia, looking at this great opportunity to kind of not live under the thumb of a, a white minority, and you see this policy being enacted by Great Britain, you're kind of pumped. You're like, yeah, it's going to be great. And then all of a sudden, boom, guess what? They secede early, remove that contingent from their independence and establish this, uh, this organic nation. All of a sudden kind of lose your opportunity right so then we've got these these two sides vying for control it's really interesting uh so in that sense it's not you know you could say it's purely racially motivated but in, mm -hmm. in reality it was actually um a lot of socioeconomic implications class than than race Absolutely. economic class yeah and yeah. uh just political uh, allegiance and belief, you know, you had communism versus capitalist nature, you know, colonism versus socialism. Absolutely. Da Vinci. Now that, and it's really interesting because they had the opportunity, right? They expressed their concerns to the British empire at that mm -hmm. time. And they were like, the British empire said, okay, well, we will still support you as one of the Commonwealth countries. You'll still receive economic support, mm -hmm. yada, yada. We'll back your loans, which they, I think, ended up backing their loans anyway. Yeah. But there was a lot of support that was implicitly implied. I don't know if you can use those two in a sense, but implicitly implied with the uh, agreement that Rhodesia would as uh, terms of their independence include majority rule, like you talked about. Right. right? And they literally yeah. said, F off. We want a white minority rule, which, you know, rings the apartheid bells, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, for of course. a lot of us, right? Sure. And, you know, sure. They're, they're neighbors to the South, which we're dealing, you know, they're dealing with the same problem. Yeah. And they had, all these things, but uh, was he Prime Minister Smith or President Smith? Yeah, uh, Ian, Ian's, yeah, Ian, Ian Smith, I think is his name. Yeah, and you know, he had that option, but he chose to just go ahead and declare independence without that support. Uh -huh. And they just kind of hung their asses out, like you said, in a very weird place. They're like fighting yeah. communism, but they're kind of apartheid, they're kind of democratic. Yeah, they're kind yeah. of. It's complicated. Uh, yeah, they're. It's a very weird place to be in as a as a new nation. Very. 
Yeah. Irish, what do you have to add to that? Yeah, I just want to say, you know, at, at this time as well, remember that the empire, you know, the British Empire, which owned what at that point held 60% of the world, right? They're they're losing territory at a cyclic rate, if we were to put it any other way. Mm-hmm. So many nations within that 10-year period of this Rhodesian conflict decided that they wanted independence, right? So now you're looking at, you know, these former protectorates and, and territories of, of the empire that are leaving and how are they responding to it, right? So there's a lot, lot, lot to yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. It's just, it's a, it's a strange time across the board. And uh, we'll get into a, a parallel kind of timeline later on, but there's a lot more fighting going on in other parts of the world surrounding these same principles. Um, so very, very interesting. Hey, Bro Neil. Uh, yes, so there's this really famous unit. Oh, no. A lot of people refer to them as Rhodesian SAS, when in reality, they were not well, quite that. Like the SAS kind of fed them. They're not, they they're not be- far off. Yeah, you know? it's it's close, but uh, the, the cell scouts is what I think yeah, you're trying to to exactly. Lead to. Exactly, you know, it's so it's crazy. Tell us about them. They were only there for the Rhodesian Brush War. You know, they they didn't exist for that long. They were really only around for about seven years, yeah. um, and they were there for the Republic of Rhodesia, uh, and they weren't, you know, some massive special ops unit. They were only about five hundred people from what we know to be today. Uh, right. But they were, they were well-trained, you know, they were well-trained. They were well-disciplined. Uh, their mo- their motto was, uh, which, which means all together or, um, forward together, you know, together only, you know, it, it, it's kind of this idea of we succeed together or we fail together, which, I mean, anyone who's been in any armed force should kind of understand something about that, right? That idea oh, yeah. of collective, collective succeeding or collective failing. Uh, but they've done amazing and incredible things. I mean, things that should not be even thought of today. I mean, there's stories about the cell scouts going in and, uh, you know, taking three to five people to walk into an enemy camp and then they'll take those three to five people and then convince them that they are actually, you know, they're, they're fighting the same team. And what's so incredible about the cell scouts is I think, and I could definitely be wrong, but I think it is 46% of the cell scouts were once former enemy combatants. So that's how effective they are at fucking pulling these people in and they're going, no, 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 no. You don't want to fight for them. You want to fight for us, brother. Because we are yeah. right. We are. We are not going to be Zimbabwe. We are Rhodesia, my brother. Yeah. You're coming like stealing Waffle Da Vinci's Waffle. stats. <laughs> and I, I know. I don't want to top off on your shit. You, you, you're talking about psyops and all that. No, it's okay. Um, you made good points. But what's crazy you just, is... You just come in and steal Big Daddy <laughs> stuff, man. I'm glad you did your research, though. I like yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, I'm all about it. I mean, I, I know really, you are. I've been in this yeah. trap like tra- for a while. But, That's a really uh, good point. Yeah. It's a rare we're, skill. I mean, yeah, it really is. When, when we come to special forces selection, right, you know, we, we have so many special forces, right? Because special forces doesn't mean that you're the, the killer of all killer, right? It means you're specialized in your group. That's what it means. You are the special force of the Air Force or the Army or, you know, the North Korean border guard. Wherever the fuck it is, you are specialized in that, right? Well, right, uh, to, to, to some extent. And in the, you know, in the, in the way that the Cell Scouts did, they specialized themselves in becoming the enemy. I mean, there are crazy, yeah. crazy stories yeah. that I know Da Vinci's going to get into, but I mean, yeah, they they had a selection process where, right, you know, you'd carry twenty five kilograms for twenty five mile or, or uh, twenty five kilometers, and you know, you you'd be yourself until you weren't yourself. 
And that's what they removed, right? They removed the self to be a part of something more. Yeah. I think Da Vinci, I think you can speak to that, can't you? You know, it's it's kind of all the same. Um yeah, I mean it, I guess it's kind of all the same. But no, they they did have a very um a very rigorous pseudo ops uh, organization, organizational structure. And for those of you that are familiar with how the military works, and for those that aren't, we'll explain a little bit. Like pseudo ops are, you are pretending to, not pretending, you are masquerading as a guerrilla force, usually, for a pseudo op, right? So you are infiltrating an area or a locality and are acting as an insurgent force similar to the force that you are arrayed against, right? And the Celisauts were famous for this, where they, mm -hmm. you know, they utilized blackface in a lot of situations. They utilized the, um, the African members of their team, which were a significant number of their team, uh, like Bronia yeah. mentioned. Yeah, quite a bit. Almost and, half, right? Yeah, almost half. And most of those, I'll get into it a little bit later, were former insurgents that they had turned, basically, yeah. as, as human sources, which is crazy. That almost half. Think about that. Half the special forces in Afghanistan, former Taliban. Just think about that for a second. Mind-blowing, right? Yeah. So that's, that's what they did. And this is the part it's I crazy. want to elaborate on what Broniel said and how that fed into what you just said, Da Vinci. Yeah, so, no, keep going. Like modern special forces, special forces is simply army special forces, right? Special operations. That's when you get into all kinds of branches. So, you know, to Broniel's point, you've got like the Air Force special ops community is mainly focused on uh, rescuing downed pilots, air crew as well as JTAC capabilities, Army Special Forces itself specialize in FID, Foreign Internal Defense, uh, Force Multiplication, Training, uh, Sympathetic Rebel Forces inside of another country. Uh, and then branching out into UW, which is Unconventional Warfare, which the Celis Scouts took like this crazy hybrid of UW, FID, and PSYOP mixed in like with just straight up just intelligence. Not even like, that's where people get all confused. I think like the CIA runs around like Afghanistan and like droves of 20 people in full kits with guns. It's like, no, no, no. Like it's, it's a lot more subversive based. Like it's like they took all those things and had it in one organization. And by the way, guys, 500 people, that's not much. That's not much at all. Like any decent sized task force that anybody on this team has worked on has been like 2,000 to 4,000 people, right? Like it's, it's crazy. Like the, the amount of stuff that they accomplished was so little is really impressive. And that mission set was so diverse. And that's, that's why we're looking at these guys because it's, it's like, holy crap, like, what were the pieces of the pie here? Yeah, and they called it like is Camo set or uh, it was several years after the conflict had started. Kama Sutra. <laughs> oh no, that's that's different. <laughs> oh no, that's that's for you and your personal life. There, that's <laughs> some royal Bannon vibes. <laughs> no, it was a really interesting combination. How they structured their C2, their command and control, was yeah. like their, basically their secretary of defense, their joint chiefs, I mean, obviously much smaller scale, but their, I think, minister of defense, their top general, general of the army, general of the air force, their um, CIA chief, I can't remember the, they use a different acronym, but same thing. And they combined all those into one command structure, which was pretty effective because you take all of these organizations that typically do not 
do well sharing information and they yeah. molded them all together into one command, which was it's homogenous. Yeah. yeah. It's something that I've really never seen. And it was really interesting to learn about like researching for this podcast. It was super cool, but I think, so, I think bro, Neil, you just hit on something super cool, dude. Okay. And bro, Neil, go ahead. I hope you're feeling what I'm feeling right now. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> because, I'm feeling a lot. Because, uh, he's got it going on. Because, you know, he's got it going on. He's got it going on. Going you on. Know? That's good. Working what what is it that you're everything. feeling specifically? Okay, so when we formed this team years ago, mm-hmm. what was one of the things I wanted? No compartmentalization. No. No, you want us wanted, to be kings in our own field. Right, but also in each other's fields, working together to the point where there wasn't like absolutely intel group. There, there wouldn't be dumps teams. You know, you you would have you would have a a common brain, if you will. You would have a common mentality. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the cool part is like taking the whole concept of dime, Mm -hmm. breaking that down, putting it molding it into one entity, which is the fifth. Into the path five, if you will. Which is path five. The fifth. And these dudes, these dudes. Oh, these, these, yeah, they're, they're, that's they were they doing are. it. And they yeah. represented how effective Not, it can be on a tactical yeah. level. And that's <laughs> fucking awesome. They represented, awesome. they, they executed it, you know, they, they were about that. Oh, uh, I mean, to, that. to have people who are out there, not, not only, and for lack of a better term, going in blackface, but they were going in and they were literally turning rebels against rebels. Yeah. Like, and there of course- are multiple instances where they are saying, oh, man, look, we're with you, but look out for these guys. And they would watch, they, they would say that, and they would yeah. take 500 feet back and they'd go, oh, man, it's a damn shame. And they would watch them slaughter each other. Like, that, yeah. is, that is absolutely insane. Like, that does not happen in real world. Like, that is some video game logic. Like, well, yeah. And, and dude, one more thing, because you just, you guys are bringing up great points. I love it. I love it. So, you mentioned the whole use of blackface. The number one word that comes into my head, right? Yeah. Is racist. Right? It's oh, just it's something that's associated oh, well, with that you know. due to like old Hollywood. Bordinha. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but right. from a tactical perspective, it made sense for them. It, it made sense, and they did it, and they employed it. And then I think about it as when you're doing your seer training, technically, and try not to laugh too hard. Technically, according to Geneva, while escaping captivity, you are not allowed to wear enemy uniforms and impersonate enemy personnel. Well, that's the thing, right? And I'm like, what? They what never, the they never impersonated enemy personnel. They, right, but at the they, same time, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, not a, it's no, uh, they impersonated. They impersonated the people above the enemy personnel. They went in there with King Dick swinging. Yeah, like, fucking I'm enemy your personnel. boss. No, they they went in and they said, "I'm your boss." Yeah. Not only am I your boss, but I'm your boss, and I have intel to tell you. Hey, watch out, Southeast. There's some baddies coming, <laughs> and then we go attack the baddies. Yeah, guess what? which is the they were baddies. <laughs> they, no, but it was beyond that. It was impersonating. It was, and it was also, yeah. yeah, it was taking control. I mean, th- we had people going in, going waffa waffa, and they would they would take over entire <laughs> entire platoons, and they would say, "Yeah, no, 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 these are the bad guys. Fight them." Yeah, and you would have the same force shooting each other. Yeah, and at the very least, even if casualties weren't high, you created so much confusion. <laughs> yeah, that everyone's well, like, "What the fuck just happened?" And it's it just, was a crazy turn. I mean, where it was like a kind yeah. of like a, a gotcha statement, where it, it, it wasn't like a it wasn't like a happy thing, but it was a gotcha statement. Yeah, where they would say to each other, and it was like, "Oh, yeah, watch out!" The but I mean, it, there, there were literally occasions where they would 
fly in on their helicopters, land in an enemy-controlled camp. And there's one occasion specifically towards the end of the conflict where they, uh, I think it's less than 100 guys where they fly in. It might be less than 50 guys. I, I, I'm blanking on the This is how record. stories are born. Yeah. There was one guy and he had a spoon and he <laughs> yeah. killed 800 yeah, exactly. people. So they <laughs> His fly name in. Kirk Lazarus. No, so they, they fly in to a Zappa or Zappo camp and they, yeah. and there's 5,000 troops here. And these yeah. guys just fly in, you know, their balls are dragging on the skids and they're just like, the war is over. The war is over. You guys won. You guys won. And they got all these guys come out and the reports are inconclusive. But as soon as everybody comes out and they're like, oh, yeah, we won. We won the war. They just open up on these guys. Dude, that's it's like 300 to 1,000 guys. insane. 300 to 1,000 casualties, enemy casualties. And they just lift off. See ya. Deuces, mate. Yeah. It's fucking crazy, bro. It's crazy. We out. That that can be... It's like one of those, like, did you impersonate somebody else? Did you not? Maybe you didn't put on the uniform. You just said that you were... No, 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 no. Here's my point. They didn't give a fuck, and neither should we. That's my point. <laughs> Geneva is fucking made for soccer matches. It's not made for fucking war. There's aspects of it that are there for a reason, and they should stay. But adding technicalities, saying you can't impersonate the enemy, when if you don't, you're probably going to fucking die. Like it's just it, it. It shows the comical state of modern warfare. No, I agree. When you compare it to not so long ago. But Not I disagree so with ago. your entire statement of we should leave the Geneva to the, you know, to the soccer. Like, let's keep the portion of the Geneva that governs women's soccer because those bitches do not care if they get knocked down. They get knocked down, they get right back up. The boys, <laughs> they get knocked down and they scream for five minutes. Oh, my toe. I love True. men's soccer. True. I love Puppy women's soccer. It, no. Good luck, U.S. ladies in the Olympics. Good luck. I hope you do well. Yeah, maybe if you stand for the anthem, you might actually win. <laughs> there it is. Welcome to Path <laughs> 5. Welcome. All right, anyhow, shots fired. Let's continue. Continue. Sorry. Jungles. Jungles. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about jungles because, and I hinted at this earlier, we've been in this desert terrain now for quite a while. Uh, arguably... I mean, you can say Desert Storm One because Somalia wasn't too much different, and so on. We, you know, we've had minor excursions into other places, but it's really been Middle East centric. Uh, but jungle is such a a formidable obstacle to even walk through and survive in, and then you throw an enemy. And arguably, we haven't done much there since Vietnam. Granted, we've had well, SF teams operating, and well, yeah, sure, but that was that was quick. That was, that was quick. quick. But it wasn't like the US uh, hasn't really effectively operated in jungles since the eighties. Yeah, that I mean, was late eighties. That was eighty nine. But right, and you've had Seventh Group in Colombia and other other countries down there. But that's sure. That's very small, you know, amount of people, relatively yeah, it's like speaking. One ODAs, kind of one off deals. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, I feel like there's this whole other piece of really tough terrain that we've just kind of forgotten about. So how how do you guys think that their terrain that they operated in really impacted their tactics? Well, seeing as, uh, you know, I hear those who don't recognize my voice, Irish, I'm the only one that uh, speaks the most Italian in the group. I will talk on jungle warfare. <clears throat> I mean, that's a shameless. Now, Da Vinci speaks second most Italian because I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm Italian. I was trying to tee that up for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I speak second most Italian. There we go. <laughs> so, you, I mean, you make great points, right? So, Panama, Vietnam, those were our real jungle centric conflicts that we had because anything before and after that, we didn't do a whole lot, right? So, like, you're looking at World War II as, as the only other major conflict where we had. A substantial amount of forces that were fighting in the jungle, and, and we know how how those went, right? Yeah, it's it's a tough tough spot to fight. 
Um, you know, but to unpack that, right, we, we haven't had a need since the 80s to really be jungle centric, right? Even now when we're, we're focusing on force on force, you're looking at the U.S. Is, is kind of staring at Russia and China, which don't necessarily have the largest of jungle terrains, right? You're, you're looking more mountainous, open terrain, um, potential, you know, those large tank battles. Uh, you're really looking at those fifth and fourth generation fighters taking to the skies, et cetera, et cetera. And, and those hypersonic weapons reach out and touching you from some super far away. So you're not necessarily, especially initially, talking about some of these jungle-centric uh, locations. Though if you in a protracted fight, you're probably looking to it when you know China yeah. invades like a, a Laos or Cambodia, et cetera, exactly. et cetera. Exactly. Back to island hopping, things of that nature. It, yeah. Exactly. But when you're looking at the way the U.S. is is partitioned out, right, the majority of the forces are focused on what the majority of the forces need to focus on, which is everywhere but the jungle. But for those you know that that might have forgotten here in the audience, the U.S. has technically they call it a division, but it's really you know two um brigade combat teams that are focused on jungle warfare they're at 25th id in hawaii right and i I had the privilege of being part of of second brigade um for three years over there you know focusing in on on, you know those capabilities just like when you're looking at if we went into arctic warfare you'd be looking at 25th id out of hawaii and usarac um that's u.s army uh, alaska and, and you know 10th mountain as well though 10th mountain kind of splits between the two but when you're you're looking at you know, the training that's conducted, everything we do over there, uh, other than go into the big island and, and shooting big cannons on, uh, you know, the, the, the desolate volcanic landscape that it is, you know, we're, we're looking at jungle centric uh, training, right? It's Hawaii, Oahu is, is a jungle. Um, other than Alaska, uh, Australia and Korea, which I had, a, you know, a little bit of partnership over there, uh, Philippines and Thailand, I spent a lot of time in both those countries and we have a considerable amount of forces that are, are partitioned out there to, to train with them, uh, with Indonesians, with, you know, you, you name that Southeast Asian country that has a little bit of connection to the U.S. And we're looking at some, you know, massive training capabilities uh, where they're sending, you know, a couple thousand U.S. forces every year to train with them. Um, the, the inclusion of the SFAB, though, you know, we might talk dirty on the SFAB a lot, right? There's a West Coast SFAB that's aligned to Asia. Um, to Southeast Asia, right? So they'll still partner with the Koreas and Japans and whatnot, but they have a, a massive footprint aimed at, you know, the capabilities of the forces that primarily have the jungle. I see Bronio's got his hand up before he keep going. Yeah, you know, I think that's definitely like some peacetime, wonderful things to be building on, right? You know, you, you build all these relationships, you build all this trust, and you, you keep that going on. But I don't know. I don't know how much that can actually be employed in times of war, right? Like we've even seen with the Ukraine and and all that kind of nonsense going on where NATO has kind of been like, what is a Ukraine, right? Yeah. So like, good point. What kind of changed between the guerrillas in that, that were trying to enforce their own rule against Rhodesia and the Rhodesians themselves. Yeah, so let's bring the linkage, right? So yeah. g- great great transition there. So when you're looking at a training force, right? So if the, if the U.S. wanted to go there, what, what's their primary focus? There are special operations forces in the U.S. military that are focused primarily on training folks in the jungle, right? I won't name mm-hmm. them where they're at, but, but we do have groups that are focused on jungle warfare. Um, you know, the jungle schools out in Hawaii, a lot of folks rotate through there. So that you know, gives an individual that capability, but a lot of leaders go through there. So it's kind of like a jungle leadership school. Yeah. And then you're looking at, you know, three meth out in, in the Pacific as well. Right. So you have a backbone currently if you're talking U.S. forces centric. Now, if you're looking at how do you train up indigenous populations, et cetera, and, and you're looking back at you know some of those capabilities we had in the past, the best example you can probably think of is, um, Mac V. Saag out there in Vietnam, right? So there's a special operations group that trained the Vietnamese um, in, in a long range reconnaissance, like the Rhodesians, right? So now you're talking yeah. some capabilities that are going on at the exact same time, right? We're talking 64 to 73, right? So exact same time frame, two different major powers, but exact same time frame. Um, 
those capabilities aren't necessarily lost, right? So if right. you have a small, I don't know what the statistics are these days, but you know, you're talking about a force multiplier. You only need you know a small group of well-trained individuals who know how to train a populace to create a, a group like the Rhodesians, like you know, like uh, the forces you're talking about over there, whatever they're called, the the Sealus Scouts or Sealus Scouts, however you want to call it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take a massive group to create such a distinct and capable force. It, it really is just about getting into the indigenous population. That's how you blend in. Yeah, I think. I think that and just their raw skills, you know, these guys were renowned for yeah. being like Bear Grylls level survival. Like they would go out relatively very small teams and they would just be out in the bush for weeks. Yeah. Just well, living off the land. You know, that, this is their, their backyard. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And not only that, but part of their selection was literally to live off the land for 18 days. Yeah. Not like, oh, here, <laughs> here's an MRE. No, like, bro, you better get enough berries. Like, you're either going to die or you're going to become part of the cell of scouts. So, like, yeah. fucking pick and choose. Well, that hey, was man. part of their motto. That's it. What did you say? Drop me up out here? Out here yeah, in the their bush. selection course was called Waffle Waffle. We'll see you in 18 days. Okay. TI. This yeah. is Epica. It's pretty good. The jungle's they no just, joke, man. No, man. That's crazy. Living off, living off the jungle's crazy. Yeah. And another thing, too. So when you see roadie breaststroke camo, you're kind of like, what What would that blend into? And then you fine. see, go on YouTube, guys. Look at it. Associated Press has all this like release footage from the 70s of these guys. And their camo was fantastic. That shit blended into their environment perfectly. Like it was impressive. Like these guys were just masters of their craft, masters of survival. I mean, they were powerhouses. And I think that was the big thing. And I know you guys mentioned, like, well, they're in their backyard. How well do you think most Americans would do right now if we had a fight in our backyard? Not very well. That's well, a different so, conversation for a different yeah, time. There's, right. there's two types of Americans. There's city dwellers and, and non-city dwellers. Yeah, like exactly. The rednecks of America unite. Right. Yeah, it just comes down to the, the natural field craft, those skills that at that point were a lot more common, uh, especially in an environment like that. And you just you don't really see that as much these days uh, as a result of technology various advancements we don't we don't have to be as good as they were and that's why it's always really encouraging to see folks watching shows like alone uh even bear grills like just kind of learning even passively learning those skills of survival and and that kind of stood out to me that these guys were they were like the the epitome of bushcraft guides right on top yeah. of being psyop warriors right like they just took that and I mean to come up with your own camo that is so effective when you look at some of the camouflage that the United States has come up with over recent years. Yeah, ACU. I, mean, like, I just what? can't. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. I just can't stop laughing when I think about no, it. No, you're you're right, dude. It's comical. I mean, yeah. As an Air Force guy, you know, the tiger stripes, rawr. You know, worst camo ever probably designed for. An active duty U.S. service. Caveat that it's the current Tiger Stripe, the former Tiger Stripe. In no, 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 no. That was, was the Mag V. Yeah. Yeah. No, that one was good. Current. Good call. Thank current. you for correcting yeah. me. But I know there's many. I'm sure Bronil probably. Anybody know about a couple? No, I, was, I was just talking about Waffle Waffle. You know? <laughs> that's, that's the whole idea with the cell scouts with the Rhodesian light infantry is waffle waffle. If he dies, he dies. Yeah. That's it. Right. It's wild because that's, and keep in mind that was an attitude they had with low numbers. So yeah, every loss not, that they took was not, uh, it was a big hit. Yeah. It's not a guaranteed win. You know, it's <laughs> not like you are the most powerful of all militaries in the world, right? It's not like you are the best. Yeah. And the best hit. of the best of the best. 
with honors. So those yeah. guys started out with 150 guys. Yeah. 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 150. And they came out to 500 guys. And you know why they got them majority wise? They recruited people from the other side. Yeah. What the yeah. fuck? You know? It's wild. We don't have that in our <laughs> we don't have that in our repertoire. No, we don't have not that really. In our manual of arms. You know, we Right. Yeah, it, it's a foreign concept. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm trying yeah. to say, is it's not you know, if it, even if it was something that was talked about, it's not something that would be trained about, you know? Right. Yeah. It's it's just such a foreign concept, such a foreign idea to have. So, you know, and we, we've talked a lot about what they did right. You know, mm. their field craft was on point. Their psyop was remarkable. Uh, just how they handled themselves was like almost illogical, yet highly effective. So what did they, what did they get wrong? And I guess politically they ended up getting a lot wrong, right? Um, but just looking at the Cellus scouts themselves, I mean, kind of, what was their downfall? Um, just Da Vinci here. Uh, I think based on the research that I've done, because I was, you know, I had a general awareness of Rhodesia, but not, you know, a whole lot of specific information. So, you guys take this for what it is, but it's amazing what you can learn in a couple of weeks of research uh, about about something. So I think they did do a lot of things right. They were very effective at the Cellus Scouts specifically, not Rhodesia as a whole. Uh, very effective, like Roniel and I were talking about. We were going back and forth about a little bit earlier about uh, the the ability for the cell scouts to conduct, you know, human operations. They were very good at that. They excelled actually at, um, capturing and extracting human from those, uh, captured or, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Defecting. I think, um, defecting rebels. They did a really good job at that because their immediate concern as soon as they defected was, okay, they didn't ask any questions. They didn't ask anything other than their, their sole concern, their entire force was, all right, we got to get a medic here. We got to get a medic here. We got, you know, this guy needs care. And they, that's all they cared about was his well-being, his family's well-being. That was it. That was all they cared about. And, you know, that was a huge benefit that, to them, which resulted in, like Roniel said, I think you said uh, 1,500 was the, the total number. They started out with 150. The unit at the end of the war was 1,500 guys. And over 800 of those were former insurgents or former uh, Zappa or Zanla rebels. Like that's crazy. When over half of your number <laughs> of your special forces, elite troops are former insurgents. Like that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that, that came to mind was what happened after, Right. So this whole concept of Rhodesia ended up dissolving into what became Zimbabwe. It was part of this like political uh, plan to fundamentally like hand the country over. It just became an unsustainable fight uh, from that, from that standpoint. And, but that's from the political spectrum. So you're like, where, where did these guys go with all these skills? And, uh, Interestingly enough, after doing some digging, a lot of them crossed the border south and went into the South African Defense Force, uh, joined some of their elite units, which makes sense. I mean, when you're that skilled and you know that well versed in what you're doing, why give it up? 
And uh, from there, allegedly emerge some of them into uh, groups like executive outcomes, hmm. which is really interesting because if you think of the movie blood diamond, right? DiCaprio's character was a former Cellus scout who was hooked up with South African private military guys. Oh yeah, man. So I, I prefer soldier of fortune. It's what yeah. I prefer. Exactly. So do that, do that math. And then you compare that to executive outcomes role in Angola and how effective they were. It starts to make more sense. Right. So it was like they created this kind of legacy that that lived on tactically um, in different organizations. And it's, it's just, it's impressive. Like I said, we're, we're looking at it from the perspective of tactics, techniques, and procedures. Um, you know, we're not going to get into all the other stuff. Yeah. No, and I appreciate the the rescue there. I did not answer your question though, actually about what they did wrong. (laughs) All I did was talk about what they did right. And I think one of the things that, um, the Celis scouts have been touted for was their intelligence. I think they mm-hmm. had very little support based on my research from the, yeah. the majority government for their intelligence. Rhodesia as a whole, very bad from an intelligence perspective. They mm-hmm. had people that had no intelligence background. They were like, okay, all of a sudden I'm an intelligence op- operative. I'm an intelligence officer. I'm an intelligence NCO. You know, right. some units only had what we would equate to an E5 or an E4 as their intelligence officer for their unit, which yeah. is, you know, pretty wild when you, you know, if you have a concept of military operations now, that is right. pretty insane when you have it's an E5 different. for a fairly large unit as your intelligence officer. So they, they did have some trouble with, uh, civilian casualties and it was purely because you know these guys are warriors right and they had a directive which was to defeat the terrorism that you know that was the the overall directive right was Mm -hmm. to defeat terrorism in their paradigm was the the zanla and the zap zapfra or Zep, Zepla. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you have that paradigm, it's, it's really tough because you're sometimes you're fighting against other insurgents, sometimes not other insurgents. Sometimes you're fighting against insurgents. Sometimes you are the insurgent. Like I talked about earlier with your mm-hmm. pseudo operations, yeah, you're acting as the insurgent and you're infiltrated into a community and then you also have the uh, the few operations, which I think probably every military has, but these guys, especially because of their lack of intelligence provided by higher headquarters, they, there was some instances where civilian forces were, civilian forces, excuse me, civilian population right. ended up being a casualty. You know, there was significant civilian casualty on some of these operations. And that's yeah. not really on them. It is on them. To Potentially. It's situational dependent. Yeah. But yeah. you have this intelligence, you have to act on it. And that's, you know, it, the same thing okay. happened to the U S and Vietnam, you know, there was limited intelligence. You have to act or choose not to act or to act. Mm-hmm. And you have to live with the consequences. So that was some of the stuff that they did wrong, I think, was not verifying intelligence because they yeah. had very good human, very good human based on all these defections that they had. Right. All these uh, human sources because they were very good at that pseudo operation and, you know, infiltrating areas. So it was, it was tough. 
I mean, it's a really tough situation for these guys. But they did a yeah. lot of things right. But obviously, everybody does things wrong every once in a while. Sure. And some of the uh, the AP videos I was mentioning from Associated Press from the 70s, if you uh, go on YouTube and you look at these videos, it's, it's really interesting stuff. And one of the ones that I saw kind of gave me a really interesting viewpoint on the conflict as a whole. And it, it showcased this like dinner cruise uh, along this really prominent river. And on one side of the bank, the enemy frequented and had actually shot and fired upon that boat and killed some people who were like having a picnic on the top deck. So there's this war going on and the boat is choosing to hug the Rhodesian side of the river because it's a little bit safer while these people are out in their sundresses and suits just gallivanting around, you know, on this oh, river safari tour. And it's like, the fuck? And then it cuts to another scene and they're at the racetrack, like betting on horses. And it's like, guys, it just shows that like hubris and that complete detachment from reality that the upper class had absolutely there. Absolutely. And we see that now too. And I think the only time, yeah. and, really and we saw problem. it in world war two, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. but I feel like something that we really suck at is getting our own civilian population behind our military for conflict. So taking that into account and kind of looking at different parallel realities and similarities there in Rhodesia, you had this, the hubris of the upper class, right? Not contributing to a progressive and effective conflict and the way of fighting that conflict. Yes. They're more interested in retaining their land and maintaining their power as opposed to actually winning the war, right? Those were like two, two differing goals for them. And it, it just, that same thing translates over to uh, even Western society now. You know, you've got the, the, the elite, the incredibly wealthy, and they're really interested in retaining that position. And that's the focus. It's not America. Right. The same regardless, way it wasn't Rhodesia. Regardless of consequences or world circumstances. Yeah. It, it's short-sighted. Yeah. And, and and oftentimes they make the mistake of thinking that they're the ones who are strategic, that they're playing chess. When in reality, it's money-based checkers. Despite all the things going on around them, the zealous uh, yeah. scouts just wanted to focus on coming home at night, right? Doing everything that they're doing for their families, for their land. And you captured the warrior spirit in that. Because being subjugated politically is nothing new to the warrior class of any society whatsoever. And these guys, I mean, they were just so effective at what they did to the point where they, they challenged even the internal status quo. You know, they had, at one point, a majority of their forces were blacks. They had black officers. Right. And that was a, as, as you stated. Of. Yeah, unheard it was unheard of. of. Like, yep. the, the, the white political elite, I'm sure, took objection to that. But guess what? Scouts didn't give a shit. Scouts don't care. Scouts were doing what made them the most effective. And that's that in itself is admirable, you know, crossing racial boundaries, crossing political boundaries, getting what they needed to be the most effective. That's impressive. That's impressive. And I, and I think modern day military, apart from the political influence, I feel like that that's happened for a long time. Uh, you know, it wasn't this race or that race. It was, Oh yeah, he's my buddy or yeah, that's my Sergeant or that's my commander. You know, so this this whole concept of trying to um, force in a lot of units this this concept of divisiveness and that there's extremism in the ranks. It's it's like, come on, 
come on. It's just a little bit ridiculous, you know. So I want to leave you with that. Uh, I think that there's a lot of good lessons here. Um, once again, it goes back to treat your fellow man and woman with dignity and respect. Play to their strong suits, right? That's what the scouts did. Worked out well. Worked out well. So keep that in mind. A lot of cool stuff. We're going to start doing a little more history deep dive. No, we got to talk about uh, PSYOP. Are we not we did. We PSYOP? talked about PSYOP the whole damn podcast. I know we did. So what, what else do you want to get into with, with PSYOP? Dude, those guys were crazy with their PSYOP. If you want to cut it off, we can cut it off. I'm fine with that. No, no, no. Let's, let's talk about it. What do they do? Pamphlets, uh, radio messages. I mean, these guys literally stated they were being targeted with psychological warfare in their pamphlets. So their psychological warfare was inside the other person's psychological warfare. Okay, elaborate on that. Okay. I'll read a, a mini excerpt, right, from a pamphlet examined by uh, some folks in Germany and the and Great Britain. Okay. This is pre-printed pamphlets that were sent to all kinds of folks in the House of Commons in Great Britain and the Commonwealth by, you know, the government of Rhodesia. The psychological war being waged against Rhodesia through many of the news media of the world has escalated to such proportions of misrepresentation that many observers outside this country find it difficult to separate fact from fiction. Now, if that does not sound like what is going on in the United States today, uh, separate, totally separate topic, but they literally were using PSYOP on, they were like claiming that people were using PSYOP on them as part of their psychological operation campaign. I mean, interesting. Yeah. I, I think it's super interesting. Like yeah. you're taking a concept that has been utilized throughout the history of warfare. And you're saying like, these people are using this on me. And I'm like literally using it on you subconsciously. Like, yeah. So, and that, that seems to route itself in, the whole concept about what counterinsurgency is. No, totally. Which is a, it's a fight for legitimacy. Absolutely. And that's what they were doing. And in that sense, it's brilliant. No, they utilize propaganda requests. I mean, they were talking to the United States, you know, they're saying, Oh yeah, we also are the new democracy from Great Britain. You know, they're trying to play that card like, oh, we just declared democracy and we utilize that and trying to utilize the the freedom of speech, the the democratic path of hey, we're also a democracy. We also have broken away from the imperialism of Great Britain when they talk to the United States. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so they end up, you know, getting some, getting some feedback from, from us. They, uh, they start talking about communism because in that time period in the United States, obviously very anti-communist. It's all about the reds, all about the reds in that time period. So, it's um, it's another tactic that they use to continue to gain legitimacy because they're working on, all right, well, we're working against the Reds. The United States is very, very active against communism, so we're going to use that towards our advantage. I mean, it's it's crazy. Just to highlight a couple things that the Cellus Scouts did 
those guys would wear blackface, fly into enemy-controlled territory. They would disseminate information, fly out like nothing ever happened. Their biggest, in my opinion, their biggest uh, point of victory was their ability to collect human. And that was from the insurgents that they had um, either surrender to them or defect to them. Usually it was a surrender position because of that African culture. It was not usually a defection. It was usually a battle situation where someone would surrender Mm -hmm. and they would be injured or, you know, whatnot. And the cell scouts, there was never a question. The first thing they did was, okay, we got to worry about this person's humanity. We got to worry about this person's, you know, well-being. And that Mm -hmm. was all that any of those guys talked about. And as soon as someone who's an enemy of those people, you get captured by them, your first thought is, oh, shit, I'm in trouble. Mm -hmm. And the first thing you hear is a bunch of, African guys because their ranks were increasingly African Mm -hmm. were all about, okay, we need a medic over here. We need a medic over here. We got to treat this guy's wounds. We got to treat this guy's wounds. We got to help him. We got to treat him. Showing empathy, total empathy towards this person. And it, it usually took less than 24 hours before they spilled every secret they had. Because yeah. it was all about their safety, their security, their family's security. And the cell scouts were really good about that. They would infiltrate, take out someone's family. You know, if they had swapped sides, mm-hmm. if they had defected, they would go in. They would exfiltrate, exfil their family to a base that was controlled by the cell scouts, mm-hmm. which is it's what... It's kind of what the U.S. military did, but on a better scale. Like they classic did it, cultivation. Yeah, they yeah. did. It, yeah, classic. They did it mm-hmm. much better because they took these folks, totally took them out of circulation. They took their family. They took everybody. They yeah. put them in a controlled camp where they were safe, and they were like, "All right, your family's safe." And they would send in someone who had formerly defected, someone who mm-hmm. was possibly a teammate, possibly. You know, someone that was in the same unit as that person. Personal connection. Yeah. Yeah. And have them go sit down with that person in the hospital and say, hey, man, what's going on? How's it going? Yeah. It's crazy. It's totally, I mean, if you're going to conduct, if you're going to conduct human in that kind of environment, I don't think there's any better way that you can do it. Yeah. I really don't. I mean, it's textbook how to get people to defect to your cause as a, as a counterinsurgency force. It's crazy. They use yeah. monetary, they used yeah. familial connections. It's incredible the way they did it. It's, it's really impressive. Yeah. Cause like during cold war with us intelligence, trying to convert Soviet assets in Berlin, for instance, it was always this big deal to smuggle them out, smuggle their family out, false paperwork, all this stuff. Then these guys didn't have to jump through those hoops. Right. Yep. I mean, granted, they had other risks, a lot of other risks, but at the same time, it's just a, it's a lot more attainable, you know, for them to cultivate that environment and just build that trust instantly. I mean, it's, it's impressive. And it's, it's also, it just shows the complicated interweaving. It's not, you know, it's not red versus blue. There's there's purple there. It's not black versus white. There's gray. Yeah. You know, it's it was very yeah very complicated, interesting conflict. Turning those insurgents were not white dudes. Right. Yeah. Those exactly. were those were black guys that had been either originally part of the Cell Scouts or they were former insurgents that yeah had turned to that side. So yeah. Very much not black versus white. Right. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting. And I think that highlights a really good misconception with this conflict. And, yeah. uh, you know, I really appreciate the team 
taking time to sit down and talk about it. I think it's, it's really cool. It's really neat. And, uh, I think we're going to start doing a little bit more of these history deep dives and, and kind of tying them into modern politics and, uh, tactics, techniques, procedures, and it's just really interesting stuff. And, uh, you know, I think the team had a lot of really great insights that spawned some awesome conversation. Um, you know, unscripted flow, always fun. And, uh, yeah, I just, just really appreciate it. So to our listeners, thanks for coming out tonight. Thanks for listening to us. I really appreciate you guys hanging with us and, uh, hope you learned something today. I sure did. That's what it's all about. So thanks a lot. Be safe. Be good to your, your fellow man and woman. And, uh, we'll chat with you next time.